A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiya! Bummy Waltham Star here. Star of reality TV shows like Thick Twats on an Island Dicking About, D-List Nobody's Getting Dodgy Facelifts, and ooh yeah, I'll eat a kangaroo's bollock if it'll make me famous. I had that catchphrase, remember? I'm not all there, am I? <laughs> ah, shit a brick. No one chuffin' remembers Bobby Waltham's store. I were all the rage one hot minute ago. Tabloids were all obsessed with how fat or thin me ass was. Every page was full of shots of me passed out, cock out and spewing. And I had no discernible skills, just a single brain cell firing just long enough for me to utter my catchphrase. But now, everybody's sick of the sight of me. One year on, my career's gone, my agent sacked me. Well, my mum and Auntie Barbara. I lost all of my sponsors. Yeah, I'm no longer the grinning git tapping his ass in Asda. The boss-eyed bugger eating a pasty in Poundland. Or the face that you'd love to slap on a packet of Angel Delight. No, not the good one, the shite one from Lidl. No, it's all gone, now that the telly's full of low-rent tossers like Freddie Scunthorpe. Look at me, I'm a rad bellend. Sassy McFlaps. Oh, me tits have popped out. Again? And pouty Philomena quinoa falafel. And her catchphrase, mmm, mmm, as no one can understand the bloody word she says because of all the chuffing lip implants she's had. So now, I've sunk so low... I'm having to do an advert for Murder Mile. I know. So here goes. Buy some Murder Mile mugs. So says me. Bobby Waltham store. I'm not all there, am I? Ha ha ha. Ha 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 ha. Somebody kill me now. Hang on. Podcasting. I could do that. Oh, it's dead easy. It's just talking shite. That's it. I'm setting up my own true crime podcast. Yeah. Listen up, people! I, Bobby Waltham Store, star of reality TV shows like Stuck in a House with Five Right Twats, Ruining Cakes with Other Numpties, and Getting a TV Doc to Examine Me Cock, announce right now that my true crime podcast is coming to an ear near you. Oh, dear God, help us all. And before Bobby's podcast monstrosity is launched, just to say, I've ordered a load more Murder Mile mugs and goodies available via the Murder Mile merch shop, which will make a lovely Christmas treat. Obviously. And as there's only a few more weeks until the new Murder Mile multi-part series slops into your bonds, before that, there's this. Friends, welcome to Mini Mile, your indispensable compendium of UK true crime trivia. 
This week, we'll ask what is the average killing spree of a serial killer? What can forensics teams determine from different patterns of blood? Can you sustain a normal sex life in prison? We read another mundane letter from an infamous serial killer, and we meet a very naughty priest who needs to spend a serious amount of time in confession. And with only a few weeks until the brand new Murder Mile multi-part series, here's this week's episode of Mini Mile. Let's kick things off with a little How do you do? By learning more about some infamous murderers and serial killers on a more social level. This week, killing sprees. How long do most serial killers last? To work this out, I've chosen 50 serial killers, spree killers and murderers at random from the UK, US and other countries. This is a biggie. So strap in. Number one, Aileen Warnos, the US serial killer and abused sex worker. She lasted just shy of one year and she was between 33 and 34 years old. Number two, Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler. Hey, I'm the Boston Strangler. How are you? It's meant to be a Boston accent. It sounded Australian. He lasted one year and seven months and was between 31 and 33 years old during the murders. Number three, Albert Fish, the child killer, cannibal and sadistic paedophile. His later murders are currently and still disputed. So he either lasted three years and 11 months or eight years, five months, meaning his murders occurred when he was either 54 to 58 years old or 54 to 62 years old. Number four, Anthony Hardy, the sadistic and twisted Camden Ripper from Old London Town. Cool, blow me, Gavner. I sound like Dick Van Dyke then. His last day was exactly two years, and he was 49 to 51 years old. Number five, Beverly Allett, dubbed the Angel of Death. But only because journalists were too lazy to come up with a new nickname for her, as actually many serial killers or spree killers who were once nurses are often given this moniker, including Richard Angelo, Charles Cullen, Kristen Gilbert, Donald Harvey, Miyuki Ishikawa, SS Officer Joseph Mengler, Colin Norris, Roberto Pook, and Jane Toppen, to name but a few. She lasted from the 21st of February 1991 to the 22nd of April 1991. That's two months, and she was 22 years old. Number six, Colin Ireland, dubbed the Gay Slayer. He lasted just three months, but at the time of his killings, he was on the cusp of being 40, the big 4-0. Cynthia Kaufman, she lasted roughly two months when she was 24 years old. Number eight, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. He lasted one year and seven months when he was between 22 and 24 years old. Number nine, Dennis Nielsen. I'm the nice one. His killing spree of 15 to 16 victims and 8 or 9 who escaped lasted 4 years and 1 month when he was between 33 and 37 years old. Number 10, Dennis Radder, also known as BTK. As they say, at BTK, you'll get it. I think that's how the jingle went. He lasted 17 years 
between the ages of 29 and 45 years old, but this was interrupted by a prison sentence. I'm guessing he was incarcerated because he spilt a certain police constable's Guinness. Right, let's speed through the next ones. As my cup of tea is going cold, and I'd hate for Reg Christie to feel an overwhelming need to make me another cup. Would you like another cup of tea? Nah, I'm okay with a tepid cup, Reg. Phew, lucky escape. Number 11. Donald Nielsen, the robber and murderer known as the Black Panther. He lasted 11 months. He was 37 to 38 years old. Number 12. Dorothy Puente. Her killing sprees estimated at 6 years. She was 53 to 59 years old. Number 13. Ed Gein, grave robber, taxidermist and murderer. His killing spree probably lasted 5 years, it is estimated, when he was 41 to 46 years old. Number 14, Edmund Kemper. His killing spree of 8 years and 8 months included a stretch in prison when he was between 15 and 24 years old. Number 15, Faye Copeland. Her spree lasted roughly 3 years when she was aged 72 to 75 years old. Number 16, Fred West, Gloucester's favourite plasterer. His killing spree lasted a whopping 19 years and 11 months that included a short stint in prison he was 26 years old when it started and 47 years old when he was arrested. Number 17, George Joseph Smith, the Brides in the Bath murderer. His spree lasted roughly two years when he was 40 to 42 years old. Number 18, Graham Young, the teacup poisoner. His spree lasted eight years and 11 months, including prison time when he was 14 to 23 years old. Number 19, H. H. Holmes, Chicago's infamous World's Fair killer. He lasted 7 years and 11 months. He was 25 to 33 years old. Number 20, Harold Shipman. Charged with 15 confirmed deaths, suspected of 257, and police are still investigating up to 450 murders. These are hard to prove, as being the doctor, he signed off the death certificate and had many of the bodies cremated. He lasted from 1975 to 1998, which is at least 23 years, and he was aged from 29 to 52 years old. Mike, that tea is getting very cold. A bit like my wife. Are you sure you couldn't do with another brew? I'd hate for you to die of... thirst. No, really, Reg. I'm okay. Onward! 21. André Desiree Landru, the lady killer with a very natty moustache. He lasted four years from January 1915 to January 1919. He was 45 to 49 years old. 22. Ian Brady, the Moors murderer. He lasted two years and three months. He was 25 to 27 years old. 23. Janie Lou Gibbs. She lasted roughly two years. She was 34 to 35 years old. 24. Jeffrey Beamer, Damer, Domer, oh, oh, who cares? Oh my god, Jeffrey Dahmer, he's like my boyfriend. Jeffrey Dahmer, the Milwaukee cannibal. He lasted 13 years and one month. He was between 18 and 31 years old. 25. Joel Rifkin, a.k.a. Joel the Ripper. His spree lasted roughly four years, from 1989 to 1993, when he was 30 to 34 years old. He is currently sentenced to 203 years in prison. 
Don't worry, Joel. By then, I'm sure that mobile phones will be really tiny. 26. John George Haig, the acid bath murderer. He lasted four years and six months. He was 34 to 39 years old. 27. John Reginald Christie, necrophile, serial killer, ladies' man, Ladbroke Grove stud, and tea maker extraordinaire. He lasted nine years and seven months. He was 44 to 53 years old. 28. John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown and KFC manager. He lasted six years and 11 months. He was 29 to 36 years old. 29. Kenneth Erskine, the Stockwell Strangler. He lasted just three months. He was between 22 and 23 years old. Number 30. Kristen Gilbert, one of the other Angels of Death. She lasted seven years, including a stint in prison, when she was 22 to 29 years old. <sighs> right, tea break. Oh dear, that's horrible. If you like, I could heat it up a bit. Me hob's on the blink. But as all the ladies say, I've got warm hands. And other bits. No, I, uh, I'm fine, thank you, Reg. Uh, cold tea is it's good for me. Right, let's crack on. 31. Levi Belfield, the bust-up killer. He lasted two years and five months, estimated because they're still looking at other killings he may have done, when he was 33 to 34 years old. 32. Michael Lupo, the wolfman. Estimated at five years-ish, he was in his early to mid-thirties. 33. Myra Hindley, the other Moore's murderer. She lasted two years and three months. She was 19 to 23 years old. 34. Patrick McKay. He lasted one year and one month, and he was 21 to 22 years old. 35. Peter Manuel, the Beast of Birkinshaw. He lasted two years. He was 29 to 31 years old. 36. Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper who you might believe was probably a brummy, if my letter-reading skills are anything to go by. He lasted five years and one month. He was 29 to 34 years old. 37. Peter Tobin, possibly the unsolved Bible John killer. He lasted 15 years and seven months, although he is still suspected of many more murders, when he was 44 to 60 years old. 38. Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. He lasted one year and four months, when he was 24 to 25 years old. 39. Robert Black, the Scottish serial killer and paedophile. He lasted five years and seven months, when he was 34 to 38 years old. Number 40. Robert Maudsley, dubbed Hannibal the Cannibal by tabloid hacks who could never really be asked to do their research properly. He lasted four years, when he was 21 to 25 years old. Woo! Phew. Almost there. Right. Ugh. Oh, I see you've almost finished your tea. I wondered if you'd like a... No, no tea. Thank you, Reg. Why are you bothering me? I thought you only liked the ladies. I do. But being dead, I'd go for anything. Even a fat, bold man. And besides, I quite like that little wiggly worm which had a chomp on little Reg. Nom, nom, nom. Remember. Well, sorry, Reg, but I'm on a diet. 
Ah, Shib. 41. Robert Knapper, one year and four months, when he was 26 to 27 years old. Number 42. Rodney Alcala, aka the dating game killer. He lasted roughly eight years, when he was 27 to 36 years old. Number 43. Rose West. Hot. She lasted 15 years and 11 months, when she was 18 to 31 years old. Number 44. Stephen Griffiths, the self-styled crossbow cannibal. Even though he didn't own a crossbow, and he wasn't a cannibal. What a twat. He lasted 11 months, on the cusp and the turn of his 40th birthday. Number 45. Stephen Port, the grinder killer. He lasted one year and three months, although he is currently being investigated for many more murders, so this could definitely increase, when he was on the cusp of being 40 years old. Number 46, Steve Wright. In the afternoon. No, not that one. Stephen Wright, the Suffolk Strangler. He lasted just five weeks when he was 48 years old. Number 47, Stephen Grieveson, the Sunderland Strangler. He lasted three years and nine months when he was 19 to 23 years old. Number 48, Ted Bundy, the crazy lady's favourite. He lasted four years when he was 28 to 31 years old, again on the cusp and the turn of being 30. Number 49, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, or based on his nickname, it looks as if he bombed the co-star of Wurzel Gummidge, Una Stubbs. He lasted 15 years and 11 months when he was 36 to 52 years old. (gasps) And finally, number 50, Trevor Hardy, the Beast of Manchester. Manfrey, Manfrey, you're all right, our kid, Manfrey. He lasted one year and nine months when he was 29 to 31 years old, again on the cusp of 30. So a big applause to all of you there for, for surviving that list. I actually had to trim off quite a few of those names. The list was a lot bigger at the start. But even I was losing the will to live. Oh, maybe you should reinvigorate yourself with a nice cup of tea. (sighs) Yeah, okay, go on then, Reg. Oh, great. I'll just pop on the gas to, you know, boil the water. So, let's break this down. Who were the shortest? Well, these were the spree killers... Stephen Wright, who lasted six weeks, Beverly Allett and Cynthia Kaufman, who lasted two months, and Colin Ireland and Kenneth Erskine, who lasted three months. With the longest, excluding those who were incarcerated, being Jeffrey Dahmer at 13 years one month, Ted Kaczynski at 15 years 11 months, Fred and Rose West at 15 years 11 months, if you exclude Fred's prison time, and of course, at the top of the list is Harold Shipman, His killing spree was 23 years. This is estimated it could be a hell of a lot longer. As expected, most serial killers often last, on average, between a year to two years. And those figures tail off the longer their killing spree continues. Although the average across the board is said that female serial killers last 8 to 11 years, and only two years for men. I guess us guys finish early. I hear it's a common problem. But interestingly... Although the bulk of those serial killers committed their crimes in their 20s, with some into their 30s, six actually committed their first murder in their teens. Graham Young was 14, Edmund Kemper was 15, J. 
Jeffrey Dahmer was 18, Rose West was 18, Myra Hindley was 19, and Stephen Greveson was 19. With only three of those killers in their 50s, Dorothea Puente, Albert Fish and Harold Chipman, and only two, the couple, Faye and Ray Copeland, in their 70s. But interestingly, quite a few of them were on the cusp of a significant birthday, usually their 20s or 30s. These were Trevor Hardy, Peter Manuel, Stephen Greveson, Stephen Port and Anthony Hardy. Well, I guess some people celebrate with a party, whereas others go on a killing spree. Me, I'd prefer a nice cup of tea. Tea's up, Mike. Oh, thanks, Reg. I'll be right there. How'd you take it? One lump or two? Uh, two. But please, don't don't ask me that while you're fiddling with yourself. Sorry. Force a habit. <laughs> Creepy man. And now, as there's no extra mile in the mini-mile episodes... Ah, what will I do? My life isn't complete without Extra Mile. Here's a little nugget of Extra Mile to assuage your pangs. (coughs) I'm not editing that out. (coughs) Or that. Or that. And now, back to the show. Now, it's time to get technical. Let's get technical! Technical! And by technical, I don't mean technical like in an IKEA instruction manual, where a smiley cartoon shows you how easy it is to assemble a bog-standard Flugenhugenmugen bookcase in ten easy steps only for you to get stuck on step one when they ask you to put bolt 62 in slot F9A of piece Wibblety Thrixty, only to create a wonky monstrosity which is one board short, has 15 screws left and three bolts missing, so you end up hammering it together with nails that you had left over whilst erecting an Ikea sofa, a soap dish and a garlic press. But at least you got to buy some Swedish meatballs and some of those Dean bars. Mmm, yummy. So this week, let's say tatty bye and toodaloo to the bluster and blather of those CSI-style crime shows by asking, how does it work exactly? This week, blood pattern analysis. What can forensics tell from the pattern of blood at a crime scene? Also known as BPA, blood pattern analysis is an invaluable tool for any crime scene investigator. As although, as we saw in mini-mile number 9, although you can semi-successfully clean up a crime scene, you can't tamper with the laws of physics. So by understanding at what speed, height, distance and angle the blood travels, and how it impacts with the surface, that can help an investigator to establish what crime took place, the sequence of events, the position of those involved, and to confirm or deny an eyewitness's, victim's and perpetrator's description of the event. There were three primary blood patterns. Number one, a single drop. A single drop of blood falling vertically and forming an evenly spread spherical shape shows that the victim was standing and motionless at the time that they bled with the bloodstain being more teardrop-shaped, the greater the victim moves in a certain direction. 
Although the higher the blood falls, the larger the stain should be, the width of the stain can't tell you what height it fell from, as it also depends on the quantity of the blood and the surface it fell onto. As absorbent surfaces, like carpet or clothing, create smaller stains, but flat or rough textured surfaces, like tile, wood or stone, can distort the shape and create its own spray, also known as satellite stains. Number 2. Impact Spatter When a victim is violently struck, the force of the blow results in the expulsion of blood droplets from the injury, at speed, from a height and at an angle. But as the blood droplets are propelled through the air, they will disperse into even smaller droplets and become more scattered the further they are propelled from the single point of impact. And as before, each droplet will land in a very specific way, from either a teardrop shape or a long thin streak, which tells you where the point of impact was. If the impact spatter is interrupted, this will show where a person or an object was at that moment, as instead of blood droplets, the surface will be interrupted by a void. Number 3. Cast-off stains. These occur when a blood-stained object is cast aside. Just like when you shake off the rainwater from a soaked umbrella, the speed and angle of your wrist flicking off the excess water will produce a very distinctive pattern. If a perpetrator throws aside a bloodied knife, the excess blood cast off the object will produce a pattern of its very own, usually a linear or curved shape. And the smaller and less dense the impact spatter, the further away it was cast. Number 4. Transfer blood stains. This is when a bloodied surface comes into contact with a second surface, whether clothing, a person or a weapon. It creates a very unnatural smear and smudge which unlike a single drop, impact spatter or cast off stain is very unique, showing you what speed, height and direction of transfer occurred and like impact spatter, the further the smear, the less dense the blood stain. And if the object was stationary, sometimes an imprint of the original object can be left on the secondary source, such as fingerprints, pattern of the material, and also fibers. Number five, projected pattern, sometimes called arterial spray. This is caused by pressurized blood discharging from a tear or a rupture in one of the body's main arteries, either the cartoid, radial, femoral, brachial, temporal, and the aorta. Although spray from the aorta is less likely owing to its position in the chest cavity. Like impact spatter, the distance from the victim to the surface is defined by the size and density of the blood droplets in the scatter pattern. But with the ruptured artery still pumping blood at high pressure, the impact spatter will be expelled in episodic bursts, which will continue well after the victim has either ran fallen or been moved, with the amount of blood dependent on the size of the wound. Number 6. Pool Stains These occur when blood accumulates onto a surface from a wound or ruptured artery, forming a pool of blood. If they have accumulated and formed satellite stains, smaller droplets which have splashed outside of the pool, or have created a trough-like shape in the centre of the pool, this can suggest that blood has dripped steadily and continually from a height, whereas a flat accumulation suggests that they dropped from a lower height, 
and an unusual void in the blood pool can suggest that the victim was motionless when they were bleeding, but has since moved or has been moved. The quantity of the blood can also suggest how much blood was lost and whether they were alive or dead at the time. Number 7. Insect Stains For flies, a crime scene is like a buffet, and as they feed on the blood and human tissue, they all excrete small circular stains, which appear to be blood spots, but are actually regurgitation and excretion of food, also known as fly speck. Fly speck and the presence of insects can help determine a time of death, as a fly's biology is as accurate as physics. And finally, number eight, expiration stains. These occur when the victim has an injury to his or her mouth, lungs, or respiratory tract. And being diluted by saliva and mucus, they are expelled from the mouth as a fine mist. But unlike impact spatter, they can only be seen if the victim's mouth or nose is on or near another surface. Expiration stains can help determine if and when a victim was last alive. Of course, if I was ever murdered, the forensic investigator could easily see where I was by simply following a steady trail of cakey crumbs, chocolate sprinkles, broken bits of biscuits and a sprinkling of sticky fingers as I rhythmically dip my dainty digits into an oversized pot of Nutella, which is technically counted as one of my five a day, as it's not chocolate, it's hazelnuts. So there. But as I'm six weeks into my diet, yes, it's all going well, thank you very much for asking, as I haven't had any biscuits, cakes or chocolate, I'm amazed my body hasn't gone into shock. Right, now. Normally, at this point in the show, I'd haul myself out by, hopefully, playing you, maybe, an advert, if I'm lucky. But usually you hear nothing but air. Sadly, the ACAST lawyer has been in touch with a cease and desist order, and that, from now on, I must represent them in an honest and truthful way. <sighs> so, I have to read a prepared statement which has to be approved by their lawyer. This will be them. Hello, it's Mike. Hiya, ACAST lawyer here. You're the ACAST lawyer? Yeah. But I thought you were the sales monkey. No, we all just sound the same, because cloning us is cheaper than outsourcing. Half of us are byproducts of interbreeding, because of all the Shoreditch orgies we go to. And we knew you'd struggle to think up a different voice for the lawyer, so we thought, sod it. ACAS lawyer, I must say, you sound remarkably like the sales monkey, though. Oh, no. I don't think we do. You see, that's our IT team. Aye, That's finance. Aye, That's our sushi chef. Aye, Baker. Aye, Barista. Aye, Dildo sculptress. Aye, In-house hitman. Aye, Kimono tailor. Aye, Jacuzzi warmer-upper. Aye, Sex slave washer. Aye, Cocaine carrier. Aye, And head of marketing. Aye, Hang on. Isn't that Bernard Manning, the racist comedian? Yeah. He's shit at marketing. But his jokes about the chinkies are dead funny. Wrong, but funny. But isn't he dead? Yeah. 
We reanimated his corpse using the marketing budget for the year. Here, here, here. Here's one. How many blacks does it take to change a light bulb? Not now, Bernard. We got legal stuff to do. So, read it out, Mark. Mike. Eh, whatevs. <sighs> okay. I, Mark. I, Mark, the bit shit host of Insert Name of Podcast, admits I have been well bad like saying loads of rude stuff and shit about Acast and making out like we is right lushes, uh, which we is not. Mm, very good, Mark. Now say the rest. Point one. Acast never drink during working hours. No, we don't. Firstly, we're usually too hungover. B, because we only work one hour a day... That's when we normally take lunch. And three, our champagne paddling pool, tequila truck and cocktail slide doesn't open until two. Although, if the DTs have got us well bad, we plug ourselves into the in-house intravenous vodka jelly shot drip. Aha, I see. Point two. The ACAS jacuzzi is not Olympic sized. No, it isn't. It's at least triple that. So get your facts right. Besides, no one's even in it right now. Not since the fat lad's pubes jammed the drain after last night's vodka jelly sumo water polo contest. I know, I'm well gutted. I mean, we've still got the cocaine ski slalom and the hooker rodeo derby to play on. But that's like, so uncool. Here, here, here's another one. There's an Englishman, an Irishman and a... Not now, Bernard! Save it for when Prince Philip opens our nudie sex slave caviar roller coaster. Anyway, Mark, continue. Hmm, well, I'm glad we're clearing these points up, as I'd hate to make you all seem like fools. Point three ACAST do not abuse the podcasters. No, we don't. First off, hurling those sad, friendless shitbags at large dartboards isn't cruel, it's exercise. And trust me, they need it. Second, how else are we meant to know if the human centipede actually works? Fifthly, they beg us to take part in a real-life game of Bookaroo, as the whole ACAST team sit on their back, clutching our wages in sacks of gold and our daily ration of cocaine by the kilo, as we whip the podcaster until he collapses, whilst inserting lewd things, like really lewd things, like what we got in Amsterdam, into the place where a prisoner's mobile phone normally goes. And tenthly... Mm, this may take a little while. Uh, just for the sake of the listeners, uh, will there be an advert in this show? You know, Mark, I don't know. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, let's see. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So, now I'm a free man, enjoying my freedom, and breathing London's fresh air. <coughs> Let's return to our relatively new section, which is called Doing Birds. As you know, I recently spent six years as a guest at HMP Soap Drop, Britain's harshest prison, having committed a horrific crime that the arresting officer described as worse than terrorism. As I, under section one, paragraph one, line one, and word one, of the Bastards What I Want to Bang Up Act, the said bald loser did maliciously state that the pub had run out of Guinness... <coughs> That, maybe, I would like a cider. Once again, officer, I apologise. Hopefully my bones will heal, and I totally agree, it was my fault that I fell down those stairs eight times. Luckily, my time inside gave me an amazing opportunity to research this bit. But I've had to hold on to it until now, as unlike mini mobile phones, laptops are bigger squarer and harder to smuggle in. And the last thing you need when you're writing a blog is sweet corn on the spacebar. Yummy. So this week's question is, how do you maintain a sex life in a UK prison? For those of us who aren't forced to make love to their beautiful girlfriend, Eva Green, on an hourly and sometimes minutely basis, (sighs) if you are separated from your loved one, maintaining any kind of relationship can be hard especially the physical part, and especially in a UK prison. Most of the world's prisons have what's known as conjugal visits, where the prisoner's legal spouse, whether wife, husband or civil partner, is allowed a scheduled period of time, sometimes a few hours, but sometimes as much as a few days, with their loved one in a private part of the prison or an external facility designed for the purpose, where they can get reacquainted with each other as this increases their chances of returning to an ordinary life after prison. These visits are usually given to low-risk prisoners coming to the end of a long prison sentence. And trust me, when I left Chokey, Eva was on me like a rat of a drainpipe. Many countries allow conjugal visits. In Canada, 
The prisoner is permitted a 72-hour visit every three months, with 48 hours for maximum security prisoners. Obviously, maple syrup and mousses are not provided. In Spain, they are allowed a three-hour visit every four to eight weeks. Obviously, this is also scheduled around their daily five-hour mid-afternoon snooze. For Spanish couples held in the same prison, conjugal visits are also allowed every few months, but they only last just 20 minutes. 20 minutes, I know. What will they do for the other 19 minutes? In Belgium, conjugal visits are only allowed for maximum security prisoners if their spouse is also an inmate or if they are in an open prison. Failing that, most Belgians, whether prisoners or not, just have sex with a waffle. Oh yes, I'm getting in all the stereotypes this week. And no, that's not something I've tried. Yet. In Russia, they're allowed two 72-hour visits a year. In France, they're allowed one 72-hour visit a year. And to curb the spread of HIV in prisons, in Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe, conjugal visits were made legal in 1998. And finally, in Brazil, when they're not too busy playing beach volleyball in skimpy bikinis, conjugal visits are only allowed for male prisoners, whether homosexual or heterosexual, but oddly, not for female convicts. Exactly. Go figure. And yet, conjugal visits in prison are still banned in England, Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales. And once again, this year, a petition to allow them was rejected by the British government. Well, I guess that means that there's more sex-starved women out there for our Prime Minister, slash head clown, slash chief buffoon, Boris Johnson, to shag. That's when he's not f***ing the rest of us. Am I right? That said, home visits from UK prisons are allowed, as by letting a low-risk prisoner near the end of a long sentence return to his or her home, that is actually an incentive to behave well at the end of their sentence, to work hard, and it ingratiates them better back into a normal routine in the real world. Of course, if you're on a three-day release from prison, would some rumpy pumpy be the first thing on your mind? Me? No, of course it wouldn't be. For me, I would dive headfirst into a swimming pool filled with rum trifle, using Belgian buns as water wings and Battenberg cakes as flippers. Now that is sex. But what if you're single? Can you have a sex life in prison? Well, yes, you can. And these are my top tips. Number one, masturbation. Also known as ownerism, self-pollution, making Popeye wink, double-clicking the mouse, throttling the schlong, playing double bass or flicking the bean. Although it is widely accepted that it occurs in prison, masturbation is not permitted, as with every area, either public, supervised, or even at night, your cell, which you may share, has an observation window on the door. If you are witnessed having some solo love time by another prisoner or a prison guard who can be of either gender, you can be charged with indecent exposure, so masturbation is risky. That said, prison bunkmates often give each other private time by watching the door for each other. And also there's nothing to stop you having a little pocket shuffle or a quick nip to the loo for a hand shandy. Number two, sex aids. Regardless of gender, although this is classified as contraband and not permitted, it is possible for the incarcerated to make their own sex aids in prison. 
prisoners have been known to insert their tumescent love trumpets into tubes of Vaseline or jars of warm liver to mimic a lady's rosebud. Obviously, as Vaseline is a petroleum jelly, any ingestion of jelly inside the man's member can cause irritation. And if a lad does insert his prison pecker into a pot of pig's liver, it needs to be drained first of all the fluid, placed inside a tight jar no bigger than the width of the appendage, and heated to no hotter than body temperature. For fear of blistering, the bad boys bellend. For the ladies, or for those who prefer that Mrs. Brown receives a quick visit from Dr. Hardpipe, sex toys can be made by melting handfuls of sticky sweets and reshaping them into a phallic-like object, which is wrapped in cling film, inserting marbles into a condom, hard-boiling some eggs, or pretending you're smuggling a mobile phone into prison. Just make sure it's washed first and afterwards. Number three, gay sex. If you're a homosexual man or woman in a same-sex prison, surrounded by prisoners of the same sexual persuasion, a sex life may not be all that complicated. But if you're a heterosexual man in a same-sex prison, it can be difficult unless you decide to be prison gay. Prison gay is a cultural loophole designed to assuage a heterosexual man's sexual needs in a same-sex prison. In prison, a man can get himself a sissy. This is a younger, more effeminate man who may or may not be gay, or could be pre-op, who wears feminine clothes. As his sissy is regarded as a woman, when the two men engage in homosexual sex, to the other prisoners, this does not mean that they are homosexual men. Number four, abstinence. A difficult one for any person trapped inside four walls 24 hours a day, for weeks, months, and even years on end, with very little to do. There are prison courses teaching the art of abstinence, but the best method is to keep yourself busy, either by doing sports, hobbies, getting prison duties, or thinking of something boring. Like Arsenal. Uh -huh. Under section something something do of dissing my beloved Arsenal act, what is treason, me lad? I said it's you, not to prison, but having your nasty little block knocked off. Or you could just buy me a pint. And number five, prostitution. Although this is a criminal offence which threatens their parole, some sex-starved prisoners in UK prisons who are on a rottle release on temporary licence use their day release not to visit their families or friends, but to hook up with a sex worker. It's a big risk, but they do do it. And yet in other prisons, especially around the world, convicts are pimped out while inside. Sex workers have been smuggled inside prison and in the more dangerous Colombian prisons, which are ran by the prisoners and not by the guards, they have brothels full of female sex workers inside a male-only prison. So you can, of course, have a sex life inside a UK prison. If you don't mind marbles up your chuff, your dick inside a dead pig's intestines, and a strictly non-gay pink flesh parcel in your back door letterbox. But the easiest way to maintain a normal sex life is simply to stay out of prison. And then you can beat one off to your heart's content. Ah, great days. What's that plopping through my letterbox? Is it a request from Acast asking for the dimensions of the rum trifle-filled swimming pool I mentioned earlier? 
almost certainly. Is it a love letter from the lovely French actress and my weekend girlfriend, Audrey Tattoo, asking when Eva Green is going to naff off so she can get some Mickey loving? To that, I just say, we. Is it an angry note from Bob Dylan saying, as Bob's handwriting is as bad as his mumbling? Which of course translates as, when will I make a much-anticipated return to Minimile? Yes, it is. And Bob, you just did. No. Of course this is... The Dare Drop! Yes. Each week, I'll read you a rather mundane letter written by a serial killer. This week, we return back to our old friend, Dennis Nielsen. Ah, Dennis. Now, setting aside his crimes, as you'll hear in this letter... Dennis is a rather officious, and he's quite pedantic about those who don't adhere to the rules of the system. As this is quite an interesting insight into Dennis, I'm going to read this into as near as I can an Aberdeen brogue as he had, although it'll probably be shit. Dear Channel, thank you for your letter of the 21st of June, which I got yesterday. I guess it was delayed by the prison as I had received a note from the censors saying that a letter from the media had been stopped. After which, I submitted an official complaint. Dennis was a former civil servant who worked for the job centre, back then it was known as the Labour Exchange, and he was an ardent Labour supporter, a humanitarian, yes I know, and a union rep. Having commented to the point of exhaustion, Over many years, on questions about killing for company? A book by Brian Masters, regarded as the definitive book about Nielsen. I don't want to engage in endless comments on the subject, in a flood of correspondence. And even from inquirers who were thoughtful enough to show the courtesy of including a self-addressed envelope. Remember, it is only a book, amongst many books. And in this particular case, the gospel, according to Brian Masters, who has his own interpretations of the core facts. Ooh, zing! One star for you there, Brian. The letter then returns to discussing Dennis's family history and those famous persons who came from or in or around Fraserburgh in the northeast of Scotland. One being Virginia Woolf, who is a distant relative of Dennis's. Composer Edward Grieg, who like him was half Norwegian, and the supposed king of rock and roll himself, Elvis Presley, whose family had descended from near Fraserburgh. The musical gene from the northeast has apparently burned with varying degrees of intensity, and my mother could belt out a song with the best of them. And my grandfather, when not wearing himself down, was a toiler of the deep sang in the male voice choir. When I first read that line, I thought he said that his grandfather was a toilet of the deep. This actually makes reference to his grandfather being a fisherman, but it could also be an insult, or implies that he's someone who's very good at smuggling things into prison. This all must be contagious, because while I was in Whitemore Prison in the 1990s, I taught myself to play a little keyboard. I composed around 76 pieces, hook I the new and recorded my modest performances. I bet he wrote some lovely love songs, like The Boy in the Box, Dying to See You, Pork Chops Before I Pork You, 
and my purple-faced sweetheart. Oh, I tried to be creative in prison, producing three volumes of poetry, acting in a full-length play. I wrote and directed a 32-minute video called Prison Works, a scathing satire on prison policy under the then Home Secretary, Michael Howard, (coughs) which I'm sure was a very fair and balanced video. I also painted some pictures, corresponded regularly, and wrote my autobiographical, my autobiographical, my autobiographical, I wrote a book about myself. In short, I like to keep productive, productively, (laughs) in short, I like to keep productively busy. So since conviction, I have tried to lead a good and useful life. And because of the seriousness of my claims, I have never, and will never, buck for a release, buck for a release, buck for a release, buck for release, that's what it's meant to say, Uh, even though repentant, you can do it then, even though repentant, I am a believer in the concepts of justice, I am in relatively good health, although I smoke, I am not on any kind of medication, so I soldier on as best that I can. All right, boyo, I can Welsh. Regards, Des. As you can tell by Dennis's accent there, he had lots of holidays, mostly in Scotland, but he also went to Ireland, Germany. Sometimes he went to Jamaica. Uh, it also sounded like he went to India there as well. But that was Dennis's accent. That was accurate. That was 100% accurate-ish. So thank you, Dennis. And now for... True Crime Swapsy Time! Where each week I share with you another true crime podcast which you might like or might not like. The choice is yours. Here's a clip. Hiya! Bummy Wealth Restore here. Star of such low rent TV dross as Clap Clinic Slappers, Bingo Wings Dance Floor Deadbeats, and Six Desperate Attention Seeking Wankers on Ice. Anyways, this is my very own true crime podcast called Bobby Waltham Store's Celebrity Murder Bandwagon. Yay! Yes, I'm abusing my minor celebrity status, calling in all of my celebrity friends and riding on the back of a popular genre because I can't be asked with doing all the hard work. Each week, I'll interview a series of D-list nobodies, E-list actors, F-list comedians and G-cup slappers who waffle on about murders we know nowt about only for me pals to shamelessly plug whatever shite they're appearing in this week. Which, let's be honest, is probably Panto. Across a series of three episodes, if it's shite, or as many as it takes to turn into a TV series, I, Bobby Walthamstow, will interview my great celebrity friends, who you'll also hear on several other podcasts that week, because they're desperate. They include Freddie Scunthorpe, Look at me, I'm a right numpty do. Sassy McFlaps, Oh, me just peeping out. I'm so naughty. And pouty Philomena Quinoa Falafel. Mmm, mmm, Who admittedly was a bad choice for a podcast. In my podcast shows, I'll ask these vacuous deadbeats such searing questions as Freddy, what would be the most unexpected way for you to die? Sassy, how often do you check the brakes on your car? And pouty, apart from shame, do you have any other life-threatening allergies? and other such insightful questions about their piss-poor careers and the hypothetical death of D-list pieces of shite who nobody is going to miss. 
This is Bobby Walthamstow's Celebrity Murder Bandwagon. And trust me, I am all there. <laughs> Oddly, even though it's utter drivel, Bobby's podcast actually proved to be a roaring success. As shortly after the first episode, his guest and TV rival, Freddie Scunthorpe, tragically died. After he got his unusually small size 2 shoe stuck in a buckled drain outside of his unlit house, as he was doing a 4.30am run, just as an abandoned bin lorry with a dodgy handbrake accidentally ran him over five times. Bobby was planning to attend Freddie's funeral, but as he was offered a TV deal off the back of the podcast success, but mostly Freddie's death, instead he sent him a bouquet of flowers in the shape of a mid-digit. Apparently, this was a private joke between them. And now, onto the final section of Mini Mile, an almost newish bit which I'm calling London Weirdos. Alright, mate. Alright, geezer. I hear your cracker is missing its cheese. Yeah, mate, I'm right off me rocker. Even the hospital doc says I'm not just a loony, I'm a natter. Lovely jabbly. Come on in. Just don't wipe your ass on me carpet. This week, I shall entertain you with a little story about a priest, a man of God, one of the Lord's representatives on earth, who is holier than thou and can never do no wrong. Or so we are told. Don't worry, this is not a story about another paedophile priest, or another celibate bishop who got his cleaner up the duff, or a staunchly homophobic vicar who was found in a public loo with someone who wasn't gay as such, but was probably just prison gay. No. This is a very different kind of priest. In 2016, Church of England priest, 36-year-old Gareth Jones, who is the vicar of St Mary the Virgin Church in Great Ilford, had been drinking at Elvino and the George on Fleet Street before staggering off to the borderline nightclub in Soho. Having miraculously turned water into wine, or less miraculously, having turned the contents of his wallet into three bottles of wine, several pints of beer, a large selection of gin and tonics, and several vodkas, Gareth had consumed a whopping 53 units of alcohol. As he stumbled down Charing Cross Road, having collapsed in a doorway, when Ian Pollock, a paramedic, gently shook the pissed-up pastor, who was wearing his full vicar attire, Gareth roared, I'm gonna f**k you up, and wrestled with the paramedic. Pastor Jones then punched bit and spat at the paramedic, who was clearly more of a good Samaritan than Gareth was that night, and as a passing police officer held the violent vicar's legs, Gareth barked, I have diplomatic immunity from the Vatican, you're f***ed, even though he's Church of England, which has nothing to do with the Vatican. The cursing Christian was then put in leg straps, placed in the police van and carted off to Belgravia police station. At Highbury Magistrates Court, Gareth Jones, who had previous convictions for communicating a false bomb hoax, committing an affray, possession of cannabis, fraud, criminal damage and driving offences, all before he was 21, he pleaded guilty to two counts of assault by beating and was ordered to pay £700 in fines, £200 compensation to the PC, £200 to the paramedic, as well as £85 prosecution costs and a £35 victim surcharge. Pastor Jones later said, to say that this incident has been a wake-up call would be an understatement. After his trial, 
he faced an ecclesiastical court which could have imposed a lifetime ban on him serving the church. But as he turned his life around and quit drinking, he remains the priest of St Mary's the Virgin Church in Great Ilford. And they say that God works in mysterious ways. So now you know. So, my beloved friends, that was your weekly dose of Mini Mile. I hope it was arousing, nipple-tingling and orgasmic, but not in a way which involves your winkle being slid into a warm jar of liver or half a pound of marbles being shoved up your mobile phone pouch. Don't forget, if you fancy taking part in a Murder Mile walk, they run every Sunday at 11am. Tickets are available via my website. A big thank you this week to my new Patreon supporters, who are... Gwyn Hughes, as well as all current and ex-patron supporters, and everyone who's left a nice review of Murder Mile on iTunes, Facebook, or your podcast app. It really helps keep the podcast alive. As if kind words contained calories, I would be twice my body weight. Mini Mile returns next week. Until then, love to you all. Tatty bye! Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.